We're continuing our series today. We've been going through the Apostles' Creed in this series, I Believe. And I don't know about for you guys, but it's been a really powerful series for me as we've been unpacking these lines from the Apostles' Creed. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot in there. There's a lot more than we can even really cover uh, in a series, but I've been enjoying it. And today we're talking about, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I got another difficult one. <laughs> this is going to be really interesting to talk about. I'm really excited. We talk about Jesus, Jesus's resurrection a lot. We don't necessarily talk about our own resurrection a lot. So I want to say from the outset, we cannot cover everything. This is a really big topic. What I want to do is talk a little bit about what it is, really why it matters. Why would it show up in the creed? And then I also want to talk about what are the implications for you and me today on this day? Because there are massive implications for it. So it shows up in the creed, and like I said before, maybe a month ago when I talked about Jesus, think about we're painting a picture. And we've said that each line of the creed is like a piece of the painting. And the authors of the Apostles' Creed think and believe that the resurrection of the body has to be part of this painting that we're making. If we don't have it, it's not complete. If we don't have it, we're not orthodox. Whatever word you want to fill in, if we don't have it, we're missing something. So we have to ask, why is this so important? Why is it so necessary? So let me start by saying this real quickly. What, what are we talking about when I say the resurrection of the body? What, is, what are we really getting at here? And I want to start with this. Here's what we're not talking about. We're not talking about somebody who, say, dies and then is miraculously healed and brought back to life. So if you remember, there's a story in the Bible. Jesus heals a man named Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Jesus takes a few days to get there. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember, he comes forth and it says he stinketh, right? I always remember that from being a kid. Anyways, he was dead for a while. Jesus raises him from the dead and he comes out and then he's alive again. And it's this incredible story. But then Lazarus is going to go on one day to die. He was raised back to his earthly life right? That's not what the resurrection of the body is. What we're talking about with this line in the creed, we are talking about someone, somebody, uh, people dying in a mortal body, and one day Jesus raising us to eternal life, reunited with our spirit and our body together. That's what we're talking about. I don't know all the details of how that's all going to work, but that's what we're getting at, being raised to an immortal body, never to die again, just like Jesus. The only person in the history of all things to be resurrected is Jesus Christ. So if you really want to know what that looks like, I would encourage you to read through the gospel accounts post-resurrection and look at Jesus, how he's operating, what he's like. That's the closest thing. And I want to say this because I don't want to spend too much time on like the body part. I mean, I hope we get resurrected to really sweet bodies and all that stuff. That'd be great to have a six pack and all that, right? But I don't think that's exactly the point. I will say this, recently this year, we, we bought my childhood home and we renovated it. We took out the popcorn ceiling, we painted everything, we put new lights up, we put receptacles. I didn't knock down walls. Joe was there, he helped me. Thank you, Joe. A little shout out to Joe Wheeler if you need help. Um, so when I'm in the house, it's the house I grew up in. Like, I know, it, I know it's like, this is what I grew up in, but it's totally different. It's the same, but it's different. It's version 
It's cleaner. There's less stuff everywhere. It's the same, but it's different. When we're talking about the resurrection of the body, God's going to resurrect us from who we currently are now into something even more glorious. I want to say this, too, as we're talking about this. The fra- there's two phrases that get used, the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of the dead. They mean the same thing. One is just talking about the actual singular body. One is talking about the resurrection of all people. And I'm going to use those interchangeably. And I apologize because I'm going to say the resurrection of the dead a lot of times. And it just starts to sound <laughs> kind of strange. So you're just going to have to show me some grace on that. Because um, it's weird to be talking about dead and dead stuff a lot, right? Am I the only one? If this is your first time in church, it's not like this every week, I promise. As I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about this line from the creed. The way my mind works is, how do we talk about this? Is there a place in the scriptures that's already really discussing this, that we can jump into that conversation to help make sense of it? And we're really lucky because the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, and in chapter 15, he spends the entire chapter talking about this. And so what I want to do is share the Apostle Paul's words on the resurrection because he's way smarter and way more awesome than I am. So I want to kind of use his conversation because I think it'll be really helpful for us. A couple things about that. If you've ever read the book, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a ton of different things in there. He talks about love. We've got the chapter on love that you hear at almost every wedding you're at. He talks about spiritual gifts. He's talking about how they're treating one another. He's disciplining them because they're doing weird stuff. He's exhorting them for other things. He talks about a lot of stuff, and near the end of this letter, he spends an entire chapter talking about the resurrection of the dead, which I find really interesting. Paul has this conversation in the middle of church because it matters. He's having this conversation because it has implications for the way that we live with one another. And as a church here today, I think Paul has a lot to say to us because I think we struggle with some of the same things. See, this First Corinthian church was a bit chaotic. They were kind of like Paul's problem child. They had a lot of issues. They're good people, but they were just struggling to figure out how to live this faith out. And I think if we're honest, sometimes we have that same. But Paul, in the midst of this, starts to deal with some people who are saying, hey, there's no resurrection of the dead. And Paul gets pretty fired up about that. He, it really matters to him. And so he's going to talk about it because there's massive implications, not just for us eternally, but today it actually matters. And Paul's going to set this thing up in two questions. So if you have your Bibles or your tablet or your phone, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to be able to read all this. There's just too much. I'm going to kind of pick and choose as we walk through it. But starting at verse 12, this is the first question that Paul's going to ask. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So if Jesus was raised, how can anybody say that we won't be raised? That's his argument. If Jesus did this, then we get to do this. Jesus didn't do that, then we don't. That's kind of his logic here. The resurrection of the body is centered on Christ. Everything about this is centered on who Jesus is. Or put another way, our resurrection, or that word just means rising, is directly linked to Jesus' resurrection. So if it happened to Jesus, the logic is, whatever Jesus is, that's what we're going to become. And we see this in other passages of Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, for example, Paul talks about people, all of us, longing for, for 
for the resurrection, that actually creation itself is groaning, it's awaiting this thing. And then he specifically says in Philippians chapter 3, at verse 20, it's going to be on the screen, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We're awaiting Jesus, who is going to transform or resurrect our earthly body to be like his glorious or heavenly body. Whatever Jesus is going to be, we're going to be. Everything about this, the resurrection, our hope is because of who Jesus is. It's centered in Jesus. And one more, even the Apostle John talks about this in 1 John 3, 2. He says that when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back for his church, the second coming, we know that we will be like him. We're going to be like our Jesus it's absolutely incredible. It's centered on Jesus. That's why if Jesus isn't raised, then we can't be raised. And then he goes on in verse 20, and this is where it gets, starts to get really interesting. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, he's speaking about Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall all be made alive, be each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. That makes perfect sense, right? It's a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit confusing. Jesus is the firstfruits of the resurrection of the dead. If you're anything like me, you'd say, I don't use the word firstfruits a lot. Do you guys use that? I don't like, what, what is that, right? We have, when you see something like that in the Bible, my encouragement to you is try to look up maybe where that word shows up in Scripture, if it's not a word that we use a lot. It's a way of starting to understand. Well, this word first fruits is really a Jewish reference to a certain type of offering they would make. We might think about it like we take, we take an offering every Sunday, right? Maybe it's like a tithe. So you give your best to God. You give a portion of your, your finances or your time or your treasure, right? It's, it's kind of like that, but it doesn't quite get to it. It's deeper than that. There's something more going on here than that. The word really speaks about a promise to come. And if you want to know more about it, I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 26. And I'm just going to read a portion of this because I just can't. It's just so good. So you guys are just going to have to bear with me. Think about, I'm going to try to give us some context for what this, this word first fruits means. This is Deuteronomy 26.1. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it. So when you come into the promised land, the land of Israel, you shall take some of the first of the fruit of the ground, that's the first fruits, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God has given you. And you're going to put it in a basket, and then you're going to go to the priest. You're going to go to the temple or, ta or the tabernacle. And this is, what you're th this is what they're supposed to say. I declare today that the Lord your God, and I have come into this land that the Lord swore to our fathers. So you come in with this offering, and you're saying, hey, God has fulfilled his promise. I'm in the land that God promised my ancestors. I'm going to make this offering to the Lord. And this is what they're supposed to say to God when they're at the tabernacle. You shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. He's speaking about Abraham. He went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us, and they laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, 
And the Lord, he heard our voice. He saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place that's flowing with milk and hay. So God, they're telling their story of what God did. And now, behold, I bring the fruit, the first of the fruit, the first fruits of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and you shall worship him, and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord has given you, your house, and the Levite among you, and the sojourner who is among you. So, Danny, why are you reading this whole passage of Scripture? What does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm trying to give you an idea of what Paul is talking about here. The first fruits, he's saying Jesus is that. This first fruits offering was a sign that the promises of God had been fulfilled, that God was faithful. Okay, so Paul says Jesus is our first fruits. So if God was so faithful to fulfill this promise and to give exactly what he promised to his people, Paul's saying God is absolutely faithful to resurrect you from the dead one day. Your promise is secure because it's based on God who always fulfills his promises. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? I really encourage you to read Deuteronomy 26. It's really quite interesting. And the response would be, like the Israelite in Deuteronomy 26, the response is worship. It's to rejoice in the good that God's done. Now, we haven't received our glorious bodies yet, right? I don't know. I can't see anybody who has, right? But because God's promises are true, we can actually begin to thank God now for what we know he's going to do in the future. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. The resurrection should bring us great hope because its promises are built on God. That's incredible. It gives us hope. If Jesus has been raised, so will we. And our catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, talks about this. This is the Lord's Day 22. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Answer, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. That is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And we hold on to that hope because Jesus is our first fruits. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then all of this is useless. That's how Paul ends this section. If this isn't true and Jesus isn't our first fruits, then like, why even do anything? Why do good for people? Why give your money away? Why be nice to people? If this isn't true, I believe it's true. The writers of the creed believe it's true. Paul believes it's true. Then this has to have some implications for our life. And this is where Paul gives a pretty harsh challenge. He says, if it's true, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So what we see happening in this passage, Paul makes these big claims, and he says, well, here's the implication. If it's true... You can't keep living the way that you do. That's challenging to me. I don't know about you guys. If the resurrection's really true, then that has to change the way that we live. Ugh! I know, right? 
It's difficult. And this isn't about just being a good moral person. There are lots of good moral people out there in the world. Paul's talking about living your life in light of the resurrection. If this is true, then blank. Then maybe I'll be a little bit less selfish. Maybe I'll show someone a little bit more grace. Maybe I'll be a little bit more merciful. Maybe my life doesn't have to be all about me because this is not the only life I'm going to live. If Christ has me covered for eternity, then I can let go a little bit in this life and I could live for God. I could love other people well and maybe we could see God do some pretty powerful things in our midst. That's what Paul's kind of getting out here. And then he's going to get to his second question. This is in verse 35. He says this, and this is really great. But someone will say, hypothetical question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I know I think that, right? Like, like I said before, am I going to be taller, faster, stronger, like six-pack? Like, am I just going to be like so like ripped, you know, or whatever? And it's really fun to think about. I mean, as, us as Christians, we like to think about stuff like, we think like, am I going to get a mansion in heaven, you know? Am I going to get like a, and you know, they're fun to think about. They're just not, I don't know. Like we're just, nobody knows. <laughs> I don't think that's the point. I think if we trust God, we can trust whatever body he's going to give us. Because of this, the resurrection of the body is, a, is, a, is God's victory. This is not just about us getting new bodies. This is about something so much bigger. This is about God's redeeming story on this earth. And this is how Paul's going to talk about this. He says the resurrection is about transformation. It's about transformation. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to read it. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. Sown as a natural body, it's raised as super. You kind of see what he's doing there? It's about transformation. It was perishable, it's imperishable. Dishonor, glory, weak, strong, natural, spiritual, earthly, heavenly. This is about transformation, not just getting a cool, new, upgraded version two of yourself. The world as we know it as we experience it in our bodies, is going to change at some point. And remember the context that I said. Paul's talking to a church just like us. He's talking to real people who are struggling. There are, there are Jewish people who have taken on Christ as their Messiah, and they're struggling to figure out how that looks. You've got people who are Romans who are now adopting Christ, and you've got them all in the same place, and they have different values and they have different social stratuses. And it's a whole mess of trying to work that out. And Paul's saying, hey, if you're not living in light of the resurrection, this is not going to work out really well for you. We can't look out for other people if we're so focused on ourselves. See, if we believe in the resurrection of the body, I actually believe there's an opportunity for us as Christians to start that transformation now. So I could say, God, this is, what you're, this is what you're inviting us into one day. Well, gosh, what if I started living like that now? What if I didn't have to wait? Can you imagine the differences that would happen in our homes and in our cities? And then Paul gets to something really big. 
This is what I'm most excited about. This is at the resurrection, death itself will be officially defeated. Man, we could talk about this for years. We have like 11 minutes. Um, Paul mentions this twice in verse 26 and then later on in this chapter. Death itself is being defeated. Remember I said, this isn't just about us resurrecting from the dead, which is really cool. This is about death being defeated. I mean, he's like personifying death and my mind goes like this. Well, when did death show up? When did we first see death? So then we go back. We went through the story, right? So we go all the way back to the beginning. Go back to Genesis. If you're not sure where to go in the Bible, you have a question, just go back to Genesis. It's usually always there. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. We've all heard the story. We're all messed up people because of that, right? Um, they sin, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they don't immediately die. There's another tree in the garden. There's the tree of life. And God says, hey, now that they know good and evil, they can't eat of the tree of life. Because if they eat of that tree, they're going to live forever in sin and in brokenness, all messed up. And God says, That's, that can't happen. So God actually exiles them from the garden so that they can't eat of that second tree. So that they will eventually have to die so that God can redeem this whole thing. It's really interesting. That's where death shows up. So, if you're tracking with me, maybe you are, maybe you're not. The resurrection of the body, think about this. It defeats death, and it allows humans to live with God forever again. It's a garden redemption. With death being defeated, we get to be with God again. But without sin, without death, without evil, this is the garden restored if you want to like explore that more, I encourage you to spend some time in Genesis chapter 3. But even more than that, Paul says that death is swallowed up in victory. So there's, there's so much going on here. I just, sorry, I wish we could spend time reading all this stuff and we just can't. It's not just that death is over. Something greater than death is overtaking it, swallowing it up. Right? It's like a big fish eating a smaller fish. God's the big fish in this scenario. He swallows up death. And if you're reading your Bible or you have it on your thing, you'll notice when Paul says this in verse 54, it, it, it doesn't look the same as the rest of the text. There's quotations. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sink? If you guys can see that, you should be like, oh, what does that mean? Well, that means that he's quoting from somewhere else means he's taking that from somewhere else in the Bible. And he's taking one of them is from Isaiah chapter 25, and one of them is from Hosea. And I want to encourage you to, to read those, but I want to give you an idea of what Paul's getting at. In Isaiah chapter 25 at verse 6, this is where he's getting this language from, and this is really beautiful. Just picture this. On this mountain, Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well, we're fine. This is a feast, friends. This is a good meal. There's a lot of wine. There's a lot of marrow. There's all this expensive good stuff. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God is going to do this thing. This isn't just talking about for Israel. This is for all people. Do you kind of start to get that? This is a big thing that God is doing that we get to be part of. And God is conquering death by resurrecting all people to himself, everybody who is putting their faith in Christ. And think about this as we get, again, Paul's going to turn to, okay, so, so what? What's the point? If death itself is, is being judged and dealt with, and we know that we get to be with God in a bodily resurrection, which is crazy to think about, then what else do we have to fear? I mean, really think about it. If I were to say, you can't die, what would you be afraid of? Now, I'm not saying we can't die. We can't die. But you'll be raised, which is pretty cool. If that's been dealt with, why are we spending our time so afraid, so fearful? And I'm saying that to myself. I have fears. I have anxiety. I worry about a lot of things I shouldn't worry about. But if that's really dealt with, gosh, we should think about that. Why am I allowing things to have more weight in my life than they need to have? How could we live in light of the resurrection? I think that's what Paul's kind of getting at. At the end of this, he's going to come back and he's going to kind of answer this question for us. See, the resurrection of the body should compel us to live intentionally for God's kingdom. That's what I think he's getting at. This should spur us on to something. In verse 54, this is what he says, Therefore, so in light of all this other stuff he said, My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's how he ends this whole conversation about the resurrection. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So in light of our future, in light of the fact that death itself, God has figured out a way to deal with this, nothing that you do for God, nothing that you do for the good of other people, is done in vain. It all matters. The pain, the struggle, the difficulty, the joy, the giving, the generosity, all the different things that we do in this life, none of it is in vain. That's a lot to think about. That's the kind of stuff that's going to last into the resurrection. So I want to ask you to consider three things so we get ready to close. Whether you're six years old, whether you're getting ready to go back to high school in a couple weeks, whether you're middle-aged and you got a billion kids and you're hanging on for dear life, 
whether you're about to retire and don't know what that looks like or whether you're retired and you're just like loving life, wherever you're at in life, the resurrection of the body gives purpose to all that we do. If it's true, then everything we do here matters. Secondly, the resurrection of the body helps us navigate how we should be spending our time. That one's challenging. It helps, it's like a, a barometer. I don't even know what you use barometers for, but I think that sounds right. It's like a barometer. It's going to help you decipher, how should I live my life? If that's true, then I don't have to spend all my time on myself. Right? It's going to help us figure out, what might God be inviting me into? How should I live my life? Lastly, the resurrection of the body brings comfort, and comfort provides strength. And if you've been through hard times, if you're in them now, you know that it takes great strength to make it through that. The resurrection, that hope, gives us the strength to hold on when things are rocky, when things are difficult, and and they are. Oftentimes, things are not as easy as we would like them to be. The resurrection reminds us that as Christ is our first fruits, that we will be with him one day. And so the resurrection of the body, this is placed in this creed because it's absolutely essential. Because if we don't have that, then I don't know what we're doing here. The resurrection of the dead reminds us that our faith hinges on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in addition to that, it helps us understand that God is actually gaining his victory over sin, death, and evil through the resurrection. And as we put that with the creed, It's helping us dig deeper roots. The scriptures help us to sink our lives into God, into who God is, and not into things of this world. I'll give you an example. This weekend, so I said we moved into a house earlier this year. It was a house I grew up in. So years ago, my dad planted these palm trees, and uh, there was four of them, and I just, I hate these things. They don't provide any shade. I don't have like an oasis back there, so I'm like, these things gotta go. And like three of them, didn't grow very well, and one of them did. So three of them, like I just dug out with a shovel, and I just like, I could like push these things over. I'm like, this is easy. It's awesome, right? Like The last one, though, oh my gosh, this thing was a beast. Friday afternoon, I just about died. I mean, I like, it was, it's like way thicker. I'm like taking a sawzall to it. I'm like, I don't think this is the right tool. And I'm like trying to push on it, and I just about died, and my kids were of very little help to me. Um, and I just like was hacking at the core of this thing, and I kept thinking, gosh darn it, this thing is rooted. Right? Sometimes being rooted is good. <laughs> I could not tear this thing down because its roots were deeper, because it had got water, because it had been growing. I could not take this sucker down. I want all of us to have deep roots in God, because things are going to come our way that are going to want to move us. They're going to want to shake us. And if we're not rooted in the essentials of what matters, then we're just going to get tossed away. In just a minute, I believe it's three students are going to come up, and they're going to make profession of faith. They're going to stand up here, and they're going to declare everything that I just talked about. They're going to declare that they believe in Christ and his work and his life. They're going to declare that Jesus died on the cross to atone for their sins. They're going to declare that they believe that Jesus 
was raised from the dead, that he bore our sins, and that salvation is found in Christ alone. And they're going to declare that they believe that they will be with Christ one day at the resurrection. And they're going to stand up here and profess that because what they're saying is because of those things, in light of those things, I want to live my life differently. That's what they're saying. And many of us have done that same thing. And my prayer for us today is that as these students make this amazing profession, that every single one of us would recommit our lives to that same profession. I'm going to live my life in light of these truths. I'm going to look at people differently because of who Jesus is and because of the hope that is awaiting me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. You have given us more than we deserve. You've loved us more than we deserve to be loved. And from the very beginning, you've never stopped loving your people. And we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that we will be raised to life one day, though we can't fully understand what that really means we know that one day we will be like our Jesus. And we know that that means that this isn't the end. And so, God, I pray that we would really consider what would it mean to live in light of the resurrection? Would that resurrection give us strength when times are hard? Would it help us navigate what we should be doing with our time? Would it help us navigate how we should be treating other people? God, I pray that in light of the resurrection, that we would live for you fully on this earth. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.